Hello, my name is Lawrence Woodruff, and I absolutely adore very spicy food. And I'm Michael Ralph, and I enjoy moderately spicy food. Professional development requires ongoing reflection and dialogue. So join us as we spend our Saturday discussing education research and drinking beer. Today we are drinking Peach Cobbler from the Maine and Mill Brewing Company. This pours like an orange soda. Yeah, it's a there's a there's like a, a paleness, like an opacity. It looks like sours is what it looks it like. It is the way sour. Yeah, so that makes sense to me. Well, to me, it smells like a stinky yellow that I'm not gonna like. I can't wait to find out what it tastes like. What are we doing today, Dr. Ralph? This month, we are joined by two authors of a piece on constraints that fuel creativity. They share how limits on our writing help us focus on new parts of the writing process and make interesting connections along the way. Later, we read about how errors are essential to the learning process and what we as teachers can do to make more productive use of the errors students will inevitably make. Let's get started. For our first segment, we read The Power of Creative Constraints in Tiny Writing. This was written by Laura Gibbs and Heather Crutchmer. And we are so pleased to have both authors joining us for this segment. First, Dr. Laura Gibbs taught at the University of Oklahoma for about 25 years, primarily online. She taught writing, often fan fiction, on folklore and mythology created by students. Welcome, Dr. Gibbs. Thank you. And we also have Heather Kretschmer, who moved to Germany from the United States and has taught business English in a variety of contexts. She now works at the University of Göttingen with courses geared toward business administration and economics majors. Welcome, Heather. Thank you. Glad to be here. So I saw on social media where I think both of you were promoting this article, and it resonated with me immediately because I also really like interesting like constraints as a means to driving creativity. That's something that's resonated with me for a long time. And so I was like, oh, they get it. I, I want to learn more about how they're doing it because I love that kind of thing. Well, the first article that we wrote, it's, it's a two-parter. The first article was really focused on words and sentences. So constraints of length, how many words are there uh, in a story? So 100 words or 50 words or 25 words or even just six words. And these are forms of uh, what are called flash fiction. This is extreme flash fiction. Flash fiction is usually um, a thousand words or less. And in our second piece, we're going to be focusing or we focus on, uh, for example, blackout poetry, where you have a text and you hand out uh, black markers to the students and then they choose the words that they want to keep and they black out the rest. And so you can come up with a lot of creative things that way. Or for example, magnet magnetic poetry. Um, this was originally with these uh, magnetic sets that you could put on your fridge um, to create poems, uh, but you can also Teachers can create their own sets, or you can even have students create their own sets of magnetic poetry. Well, Heather and I met, 
I think for the first time through something called the Mid-Year Festival, MyFest, one of the activities that was happening all throughout the summer was something called, did we call it the Daily Create, Heather, or did Alan have a different name for it? A Daily Create, where there was a creativity prompt for people to engage with and play with, uh, often involving different kinds of media. Um, I was familiar with Daily Create uh, from Twitter and the work of Alan Levine uh, for many years, but I think, Heather, that was the first time you'd encountered Daily Create. Is that right? That's right, yes. Um, and I was at first I was like, what is this? Um, some kind of strange prompt where you spend about 15 minutes um, yeah, finding a solution to. Sometimes it takes a little bit more longer. Sometimes a little bit. It's a little bit shorter. But at first, I was like, "Huh, this is kind of strange." So I, I gave it a try. I was like, "Well, why not? You know, there's no grade here. There's no promotion or anything. It's just, it's just for fun." So I gave it a shot, and and I found that I really liked it. It, um, it kind of helped me to, yeah, release some creativity, I guess. I, they're really fun, uh, and they involve all kinds of of constraints. Heather and I, in the article that we wrote, were focused on writing and supporting student writing, but the kinds of creativity that the Daily Creates explore um, involves all kinds of communication and expression, not not just writing. Uh, so if people are interested in that, um, it's the uh, hashtag is DS106. Uh, it's from Digital Storytelling, a course that was taught uh I don't know, maybe for the first time back around 2005, I can't remember, um, at the University of Mary Washington. And this is a, a creativity spinoff from that class that, that just won't stop. It keeps going and going. And they have a creativity bank uh, that's full of, gosh, it must be thousands of different kinds of prompts by now, Heather. Is that right? Yeah, I think they have over 4,000. They just reached the 4,000 mark. It's a really, actually, I think it's a really nice resource for teachers. I, I, I liked, I liked this. I think that oftentimes when a student says I'm not blank, whether it's creative or I'm not a mathematics student or I'm not whatever, what, what's really happening is that they, they are, and they're afraid of judgment. And what happens in these, the way you framed these creative tasks, these creative prompts is that instead of asking them to create a poem that will then be judged by your peers and, and assessed for its literary value, you have instead given them a puzzle to solve. And that makes the creative process a game. And that was, that was my note when I, your, your, your paper was a, a, a an easy read. It was well written. It was smooth. It was short. It was it was an easy easy to access article. I enjoyed reading it. And the note was when you give the constraints, instead of making this an assignment where they have to like it doesn't it feels like a puzzle that they're solving instead of a um, a big task, a daunting piece of art that they have to create. It's a puzzle that they solve. And when it's a, a smaller task. It's a smaller puzzle that they have to solve. So it's less intimidating. It's less about judging the quality of the literature and more about, well, how do I solve this puzzle? One of the prompts that I worked with the most was um, uh, maximum word length uh, with stories that are, say, 100 words long or even shorter, all the way down to six word stories. And that's really how I got started doing this kind of constrained writing. I'd been doing creative writing for all those years when I was teaching, but I really didn't discover 
the power of constrained writing. And I should tell the story of how it happened. My father, who was already quite elderly, got diagnosed with terminal lung cancer and, and had radiation therapy, just palliative. And then he went on hospice and he had brain fog really from, from the, the radiation and, and from just from being so ill. And he had always loved to read, but he couldn't really read the way he used to. You know, he would look at a, a page and read it, but the way he described it was that when he turned the page, he just lost everything. You know, so the kind of books that he liked to used to read, mostly nonfiction, history books, but also science fiction, he couldn't read them anymore. What I discovered, though, was this genre of hundred word stories. And there are books of them out there, hundred word science fiction stories, horror stories, which he liked. And so I was getting him all the hundred word storybooks that I could find. And he, he really liked those because he could sit there and, and read the story and he would talk about it with a caregiver, whoever was with him or a friend who was visiting. And then when he turned the page, it was fine that he had forgotten everything that was on the, the page before because that story was done. And so I ran out of 100-word storybooks for him. So I started writing 100-word storybooks for him. And I realized that I loved writing 100-word stories. It was just thrilling for me exactly because of what you were saying, Lawrence. It was, it was a kind of puzzle to solve. And, and it was motivating in that sense in a way that I had never found my own writing to be motivating for me before. I'm a good reader. I'm a good editor. But I hadn't been a very prolific writer because I really didn't have my my rhythm, my my sort of, you know, how to get started and, and keep going. But those hundred word stories and writing them in, in books for my dad really did that for me. So I managed to finish three books of hundred word stories for him before he died. And one of my favorite pictures that I have of him was maybe about a week before he died is him sitting in his recliner reading that last book of 100 word stories I'd written for him. I wish I had discovered this many years earlier. It came quite late in my teaching career. And that's why I've been motivated to go out and tell everybody about this. It's like, don't wait until the last years of your teaching. Start now. Start exploring these short forms and see what you can do with them. One of the one of my big notes coming out of this that again, it resonates with things I already think are important. But your article makes the makes the point uh, midway through about the importance of the revision process and the difference in what it looks like for students, especially for early for early career writers um, to be able to productively engage in that revision process between different formats. And so so often, especially you use the example of like an eight-page paper where the focus is, well, I've got to generate eight pages of content and the quality of that content is really secondary. I've just got to get everything in there so I can possibly hit that maximum versus when you have these sort of constraining structures where generation is such a trivial task, like getting a hundred words, the great many students are going to be able to hit that mark pretty quickly. And before they get all the really good content in there, which is an experience that like a professional writer who's creating a novel where they have these really big, intricate ideas that they've got to find a way to fit them all in. That's the same thing that the students are going to experience in that much more limited format. And so then they can practice a skill that I think, I, Michael Ralph, think is grossly unpracticed across all educational systems, which is the revision process. And it's, that's what the actual puzzle solves 
evolving looks like. And your article does a really good job, I think, of referencing some of the underlying brain anatomy and brain physiology that explains why that revision process is so productive and what we miss out on if all we ever focus on is generation. And there's some great brain anatomy in there. Lawrence and I, we used to like, we used to geek out on that all the time. So I love it. Um, but you mentioned like the activation of multiple systems in our brain, and I'm going to read them. The co-activation of the central executive network, the default mode network, and the salience network, and being able to link that back to some of the you know, neurophysiological research that shows that co-activating all those things together gives us an opportunity to make connections in a way that just does not happen if all we're focused on is generation, where you're just dumping the existing state of your schema and whatever it looks like, just put it on the page. But when you're engaged in that revision, you're activating more things in your brain at once. I also like that brain anatomy neuroscience thing. And when I was reading it, I didn't know about the salience network. Like I knew, I kind of knew about the executive function stuff and I, I knew about some like a background processing stuff, but that network that sort of reroutes you back to executive, it made me think of the apocryphal Archimedes Eureka story where he's trying to work on this, this puzzle. How do I solve whether or not this gold is real or not? And he's doing all of this stuff and he doesn't know. And then he goes and he relaxes and takes a bath. And so it shifts from his executive center to his, you know, default mode center and he's just bathing. But then he, his, that default mode center finds an idea because it's he's taking a bath, and then the salient says, "Oh my gosh, ship that directly back to the executive center. We got to do this." And then he runs down the street naked, excited that he solved the problem. And so uh, I I liked this salience network idea because that's the aha moment that us teachers are looking for in the classroom when the kids' eyes get bright. We know we've activated that. We know that they have activated that, and that we've got an environment where they they can do that, and and that that feels really great. And to have a uh, sort of a psychological construct to name that function was very satisfying to me. So thank you for introducing me to that concept. Heather, do you, do you give any of that? Um, do you discuss any of that with your students as you're talking about the writing process and providing them to support that? Do you, how, how prominently does some of this neuroscience feature in um, the way that you message these structures? That's a really good question. I haven't thought about um, actually telling students about this as they're doing, as they're writing um, during the writing process, but I think that's a really nice idea. I did uh, do something this semester about um, exam anxiety and working around uh, those kinds of performance anxieties. That I did with the students, but I think that's a really good idea. Thank you. Uh, cheers. There, we often, especially when we are still sharing a department, talked a fair amount about like schema structures and retrieval practices. A big is a big deal to both of us, and it made me think of these constraints reminded me of the way that chunking works and made me wonder about how interrupting chunking is a means to promoting creativity, which is what I thought I read in some of the way you were describing how this constrained writing can boost creativity. Of if I am used to recalling an idea and it comes out in this big chunk because I have expertise. And so like I think of this one idea and ideas two, three, four, five, six, seven all come out in like an existing network of connections and relationships. And if I don't have any constraints, every Every time I think about that schema, it's going to come back out the exact same way. Like I, I remember it the way I learned it and it's well rehearsed and it activates every time. And so the constraint is an opportunity of you literally cannot pull that schema out the way that you have it in there in the first place. If you want to have room to solve the problem the way it's presented, you must choose 
only a subset of the, that schema structure, which kind of felt like I'm trying to make a puzzle out of three other puzzles that already have existing pictures. How can I make a new picture? And like, if I pull a piece from that puzzle, I can't pull a piece over there. And so I'm forced to find new connections simply because you're interrupting the opportunity to do retrieval in the big chunks, which is interesting because in my classroom, I very often thought about promoting big chunks for retrieval. But for the sake of creativity, I'd never thought about the idea of wanting to interrupt some of that chunking. And that was a very satisfying insight. So that was great. I mean, that's a big part of what poetry does, right? Is is poetry interrupts the sort of normal flow of sentences, of ideas. You know, students are often very intimidated by poetry because they think it's all about meter and rhyme and sort of those kinds of formal constraints. But, but poetry is about more than that. It's about a, a kind of um, defamiliarization, a kind of intensification. And one of the things that we talk about in the, the follow-up article is about how these short forms of writing just inherently start to feel like poetry to students and to, to, to carry that weight of poetry and, and to make them pay attention to the short writing, the way that they pay attention to poetry in a different way than prose. You know, prose, the idea is you just sort of read through it to get to the end, whereas poetry is something that you experience word by word, moment by moment as it unfolds. And helping students to get in touch with that kind of language again is, I think, really important in school because so much about school is not just even normal prose reading about getting to the end of something, but about skimming, you know, and 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 just not paying attention, like getting it done, but not paying attention. And one of the things I like best about short forms of writing is that you can really pay attention to it. That's what was happening with my father, right, was that his ability to focus and pay attention had had changed and become really constrained. And so he needed a different form of writing. And with students, their, their ability to focus, it's not constrained in the same way that my dad's was, but it's constrained in different ways. They've got too many things to do. They've got too much going on. They've got all kinds of habits of skimming and rushing and not paying attention. Um, So one of the things I loved best was that when students went to revise the short form of the writing, they they were really paying attention to it. They could hold the whole thing in their mind. You cannot, unless you're a pretty sophisticated writer, hold an entire eight-page paper in your mind at once. You don't get that holistic experience, but that holistic experience that we're used to, say, with poetry, because poems are short, is something that we can have with short forms of prose, too. And I would argue it can work in a science classroom as well. You know, being able to write a really good paragraph in response to an article, I think is more valuable than a five-paragraph essay. That one really good paragraph means you focus harder, you pay more attention, and then you have something that you can share with more people in the classroom, too, who are going to be able to pay attention to it as they read it. A lot of these, like, actual historic scientific breakthroughs that scientists actually make come from when their concept, that as they understand it, isn't isn't actually descriptive of of the world that we live in, but much of it is. So when you what 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 parts of this are usable? What parts of this are valuable? What parts of this are accessible? Well, I need to interrupt my understanding and just pull out this part and then try to fill in what what's around this. And so I think this this uh, this piecemeal pulling of things to try to like find the valuable chunks 
is really valuable, not just in creativity. And on a personal note, I've definitely been inspired by this paper. One of the courses that I teach is a, a, a course that prepares students to go to college who have declared that they will be the first people in their family to earn a degree. And, and I teach a lot of um, uh, academic study skills, uh, uh, school culture navigation stuff, uh, and we do a lot of writing. We write personal reflections every Friday uh, about things uh, that we've learned and then try to contextualize in our life. Uh, anyway, so I have them do a writing on every Friday. And what I'm thinking about, and what's great about this short form is that um, you can do it, you can get it done, and then you can revisit it. Uh, but also, uh, I'm thinking about them creating characters and then talking using their characters to illustrate challenges that people have in school or challenges that people have in college or challenges. And then like, you know, in a one, a 100 paragraph essay, now that you've introduced me to this, this character one week, next week, I want you to write a story about how this character faced this challenge in an academic setting and uh, how, how, how that got them or how they overcame it. And so you can revisit these small things and create over time, something larger that initially would have been too intimidating for them. But then when they look back and say, we've been doing this for 12 weeks and I've got this whole paper about this creative person over un, like challenging these because it's small, it doesn't seem as intimidating. Uh, so providing those constraints makes it accessible, makes the writing accessible. So I'm going to start doing that. I like, that's going to happen now. That is done. Like I know this, like, the next Friday, they're going to start this process. So I'm super pumped. This is absolutely influential. Well, actually, I was going to touch back on um, the revision process and also talking about uh, what I do with my, my business English students. Uh, for example, they have to write a report and the report is 750 words long, which is a little bit longer, obviously, than what uh, Laura had her students do with her 100 word stories. Um, but it still is uh, pretty constrained. I mean, especially if students are used to writing what, who knows, eight page, 10 page, 20 page papers, 750 words is quite, is not a lot at all. Um, and sometimes students are like, oh, I know so much and I want to put so much in. And, you know, can I, you know, write a thousand words? Can I write, you know, 2000 words? And, and I'm just like, no, decide what you think is most important. You don't have to write about everything. It's okay that you've learned so much more than you can put into 750 words, right? Decide on your own what's important and, you know, and stick with that. And, uh, you know, I have them do peer review in class, um, you know, before it's due and which I'm sure many teachers do, right? I think that this is a very common thing that, um, the teachers have their students do, but um, that helps them to, to get some feedback from their peers. And I also ask them, I say very specifically, please don't be looking for grammar or word choice or punctuation. Uh, please read as a reader, right? Be, you know, read for the content, maybe for the organization. If there's something that's unclear, something that you don't understand or a, or a question that you have, you know, those are the kinds of things to give feedback on. But don't be saying, oh, I see that you forgot your S here, you know, a third person S, <laughs> right? Um, you know, don't be looking for those kinds of mistakes. That's not the point of this. 
Heather, knowing that you teach in like a technical and a business context, and so thinking about I've worked in industry for the last several years now, that's I, I'm a full-time researcher and I work in, I don't work in academia anymore, I work at a company. I can imagine somebody might argue that a technical writing class, they don't need to be creative. Who cares about, like, who cares about all this junk? They just need to be able to write whatever they're going to write. And like, that would be false. I can hear in your description of the constraints, the same kinds of conversations that I have, where I, I have a lot of communication responsibilities in my role. And talking to other folks who are looking to improve their ability to give a, a client meeting, to give a, an interview pitch, to give a whatever it might be. And those sorts of constraints, I, there's, a, there's a quip that I've used several times with colleagues where if they want me to give a presentation for an hour, I don't need any pro, like lead time, like whatever, like sure, let me know. Uh, if they want me to give a presentation for half a day, let me know. I need to prep for that. If they want me to give a presentation for 10 minutes, I need a lot of lead time because that is much harder to prep and do a good job with than if I have an hour and I can say whatever comes to mind. And that's something that has really been useful in a lot of those conversations to understand that the the difficulty and the importance does not scale linearly with the time of the engagement. If I'm going to step in and have a high pressure, high importance, I need clarity, I need resonance, I need impact, and I have three minutes to do it, I am going to practice the absolute loving snot out of that three minutes because every word matters and I don't have words to waste. And that's not true. That's not unique to me. Everybody in that context, that's true. And our business lives and dies by that. Like if we're not, if we're not able to communicate in that setting, we won't win the work and we won't get to keep doing what we do. And so I think it, I love hearing your description of this approach with your students, knowing it's a business context and a technical context, because somebody who works in the places where they may eventually work, that is absolutely a skill that is worth its weight in gold. Like we need more new hires who have those kinds of competencies, because those are the places where we've got to be able to do it well. And it's often under practiced. So, uh, so cheers, kudos to you. That's, that's amazing. I want to hire all your students. <laughs> okay. I will tell them. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. The revision of learning how to shorten writing is really fun too, because it's very teachable. You know, you can actually tell students about how to find words that aren't doing any work. And yes, it's okay to use contractions. Um, I really had fun coming up with like how to revise down, how to expand. It's just fluff. And now we can use AI writing generators to expand anything infinitely, right? So the idea of long writing as being a measure of anything is now just gone. But short writing, just like you were saying, that's going to be a, 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 a skill, a value that students need going forward. We really appreciate you both joining us to talk about creativity and the role of constraints in promoting creativity. Uh, if any of our listeners want to consume more of the things that you write and the things that you're thinking about, where can they find you? I'm, I'm always writing uh, tiny tales and I work on other uh, short forms of writing like proverbs and riddles. And it's all at my website, loregibbs.net. There's always something going on there. And I'll close with a, a very old Latin proverb that's, that's my keystone habit, I guess, which is nulla die sine linea. No day without a line of writing. And um, I can highly recommend the Mind Brain Ed Think Tanks. Um, I'm one of the editors for those, and I often write articles there as well. Yeah. And the second thing I would promote would be the Daily Create, if you want to do a little daily challenge. Um, and you can always upload those to Twitter if you want. Or if you're not on Twitter, you can just do it for yourself. That's also fine. And my keystone habit would be Coach Kindly. Empower each other. 
For our second segment, we read An Integrated Model of Learning from Errors. This was written by Xian Zhang and Logan Fiorella. And it was published in Educational Psychologist in 2022. My recollection is that I actually saw um, Dr. Fiorella promoting this on social media. And in particular, you and I both talk about the importance of making errors and learning from errors. We referenced revisions so many times in that first segment. And so uh, recognizing that that was something that was interesting to me and seeing an opportunity to sort of re-grapple with all of the state of research in that field was appealing to me. And so I threw it in our queue. Yeah, man, this is one of those papers that was, uh, you know, I started it and I was just reading a paper about making corrections and it got better and better and better and better the longer I read it. This is a paper that ramped up into me like uh, relevance and excitement and applicability. uh, And, you know, I didn't know what it was going to be about, but it 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 really hit me where I like to live, man. I loved it. Uh, And I just I don't know. I just feel great about this paper in general. I also had a a similar experience reading through it. And in particular, what I liked about it was, I think it is perhaps one of the best literature review sections that I have read in an article for quite some time, at least. In fact, I was preparing for the show this morning and uh, my my parents came over to spend some time with their grandchildren. And Dr. Shannon Ralph has been on the show before. And I was sitting and reading the article and she had occasion to be like seeing what was going on over my shoulder. And she just kept, she commented on it. She was like, oh, I know those. Oh, those researchers are really good. I'm glad that I'm glad that that's in the literature. I was like, I know this is so great that they're connecting to so many other fundamental pieces of how I think about practice. And so even shout out to Dr. Ralph. She thought the lit review was really good. This paper did a lot of, you know, affirmation of choices that I make regularly in my classroom, but it also gave me something to definitively and immediately change in my classroom for the rest of the semester. One of the things that I liked from that literature view that I think we can talk about briefly now is where making mistakes sits in a productive learning process or a paradigm for a teacher and what they're trying to facilitate in their classrooms. Because they connected to, if we're making errors, what are they doing to show what they know in the first place? How are they engaging with what they already know? How does that produce mistakes? Like, how do we think about how mistakes exist in that sort of initial structure. And then how do we talk about what mistakes are? And what I really appreciated was their recognition of many contexts where mistakes are to be avoided. We want to try to practice perfectly. We don't, we don't want to avoid all the errors. We want to set up situations where students are not making errors. And I feel like they did a good job of presenting research that showed that that is not what a productive classroom looks like in many contexts today. And that in fact, what we want to be doing is creating environments where we can get the most out of the mistakes that students are going to make. Number one, because mistakes are inevitable. So even if we lived in a world where we wanted to avoid them, we can't. So let's live in this one. But also all of the opportunities for really valuable time and effort being spent when mistakes happen. And so instead, sort of reframing how we think about errors as instead perhaps one of the purposes of what we're doing to be able to have really useful errors and then have really productive time engaging with the errors when we make them. 
you know, without breaking it down, I think that as teachers, when we're looking at self-regulated learning, what we're looking at those, quote, good student behaviors, students that are conscientious uh, and metacognitive and responding to the experience and being aware of their choices and their behaviors as they contribute to outcomes. So the the um, self-regulated learning uh, that's paired with this process is like correcting your own mistakes, identifying your mistakes and correcting them and having the opportunity to correct them is a behavior that highly supports the development of our students being autonomous, self-directed learners and autonomous, self-directed learners engage in those behaviors. So if we are denying our students an opportunity to, uh, edit, revise, and improve their mistakes, regardless of what they're happening in the instructional sequence. If we deny them that, then we're denying the scaffold that we can be giving them to help them be the autonomous, lifelong learners that we ultimately want them to be at the end of their educational experience. And so the paper was very explicit. The two authors were very explicit in outlining sort of two phases because a lot of the existing research on the impact of errors in learning environments sort of links to one phase or the other. Phase number one is what are we doing to generate errors? Like what's the context of the prompt? What are the students doing? How are they making their thinking visible? All that sort of stuff that goes into what are they doing to generate the error? And the second phase is what are they doing to detect and engage with the mistakes after they've happened. And that includes what are they doing for their review processes? What are they doing like either cognitively or with external resources to identify where the errors are, identifying them as errors, and what do they do to correct them or improve them? And so I think clarifying those two phases and then what we can do as teachers to be really productive in both of those phases is useful because that's what the paper built to was recommendations for either of those phases. So in terms of the generating errors phases, there were some options about how students, how you could, how a teacher could uh, craft experiences for students to generate errors. And what was interesting is they divided up uh, into like two points in an instructional sequence. They have the sort of pre-learning generating errors before the instructional event, um, uh, where they're asked to solve a problem, but you haven't told them the formulas that we would typically use, or you ask them to you know, create a, uh, a solution to a problem, but we haven't talked about the science relevant to the problem or sort of, sort of the, the, the initial uh, exploration phase um, uh, and, and, and how they would generate responses, solutions, or, or, or answers during that time. And then how they would generate errors, what prompts you would give them after the instructional phases. So generating errors can occur at any time in your learning experience. I think one of the one of the things that was established early on in this paper and then reinforced throughout is the idea that giving students avenues to see their work, and then either through an external criteria or discussion with peers or discussion with experts, giving them some route to be able to evaluate and improve that work gives them a greater sense of self-efficacy that encourages their engagement with the process. And it's that 
engagement in, in identifying our errors and having the power to improve them, which gives students the investment to actually change their schema and grow their understanding. Because they, they contrasted practices that are not effective. Just identifying, oh, sorry, kids, you got, you got six out of 20 questions wrong, does not result in greater retention of material. That kind of that does that does not empower the students to identify and improve and explain their mistakes. Uh, the, you are not incentive, and, and and even if you ask them to do that, if there is no, um, if there is no, uh, I'll say, uh, celebration of growth as a consequence of that behavior, then that behavior's value is diminished intrinsically for the student. One of the things that they. Uh, they 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 mentioned it just a couple times in the paper. They talked about mastery. Uh, they sprinkled it in, and that um, idea that being able to identify and correct your mistakes as you pursue mastery is uh, a valuable driving a, a valuable motivational drive. But if and this paper doesn't talk about grades. But if we're grading practice and then finalize that grade is, oh, you got it wrong. Now we're moving on. There's that that ends the growth process that the errors could be giving them. This all made me think of some development in my own teaching when I was still at the high school level. Because one of their fundamental recommendations, like one of the big principles, they call it one of the big principles for having productive work around errors especially in the description and clarification correction phase is that students need to be able to be in charge. They need to be doing their own explanations and corrections and connections. And it makes me think of, I was doing retrieval practice in my AP biology classroom and we were doing these prompts and they were doing some writing and it was fine. But then I was starting to grapple with a problem that I think many teachers grapple with at some point in their career where we're saying, I'm spending all of this time and energy grading things. And it's not producing improvement that's making the students frustrated and it's making me frustrated. Like by the time you write the same comment on a paper for the third time, you're like, why am I writing this comment if it's not actually leading to improvement? And that's that's frustrating. And I was dealing with that. And so one of the changes that I made was we would do our retrieval practice and they'd respond to a prompt and they'd create, a, let's call it a paragraph of writing. Some wrote a little more, but about a paragraph. And then instead, I wouldn't, I wouldn't immediately provide feedback on that, but instead they would start working together to compare answers between students. And I remember what was useful in that scenario was my role in facilitating conversations between students who had different understandings so that they could both find areas for improvement or discussion between their two responses. And I remember standing back in my room at one point, watching all of the students talking in these small groups as they, they've got their textbooks out, they've got some notes out, and they're having vigorous discussions. And occasionally somebody would look up and, and talk to another group to get some resolution on something. I, didn't, I couldn't hear word for word what was happening, but I felt really great that everybody is productive and everybody is improving. And I knew what we were going to have full group conversations about in, you know, in a few minutes, but I was like, I'm just, we're here, right? We're, this is great. And the students are in control and the students, they don't need my direction to know how to improve because they have access to resources. 
to evaluate their own work. And that evaluation process, that interrogation process, as it overlaps so much with our last segments, that internal work of evaluating and probing and improving, I think is something that's really valuable. I think that this framework for errors lines up with some of the revisions and creativity that we were talking about previously for the importance of the students have got to be in charge of it. The students have to have control of it. Correcting your work means that you have produced something, you've struggled with it, you have a means either from the teacher expert, an external expert, an external source, or your peers to help you identify how it can be improved. Then you do do the report, you do the improvement, and then you do it again to show that you've grown. And that cycle is very consistent with what a variety of forms of retrieval practice look like. So um, that made it comfortable for me to read this because I could see a lot of places where, yep, I am doing that and I see the success of that. But there are a few places in here that I'm not doing. And that really, of course, is helping me identify errors in my practice that I'm excited to, uh, now that I've detected them, to correct and engage with. I'm really excited about that. And one of the things that they did is this concept about um, if the errors student generate are not semantically linked with the content, correcting the errors later does not result in meaningful schematic repair or development. So what am I saying? Uh, they they critiqued a practice that I was engaging in this year, and I was excited to engage in it. Um, and now I'm excited to improve it. Uh, and that is my implementation of pretests, as inspired by some research we've read in the past. I'm I'm giving my kids pretests on all these units this year, but I am giving them short answer questions on their pretests because I have been. Um, I have, when educated to be a teacher, I was, uh, I came out of my teacher education program pre with a pretty strong distaste in my mouth for multiple choice tests. But if I'm giving them a question on a pretest with a short answer, and they truly have no context for the vocabulary in the question, then they are. They do answer the question with some kind of pun or joke or non-contextualized answer that is not semantically linked in any way to the context of the material. So I'm not getting the pretest benefit if I do it this way. And they then said that multiple choice pretests yield greater memory benefit for students than short answer pretests because the language it uh, primes them to recognize some of the relationship of the foreign vocabulary. It creates semantic linking of of, pre of foreshadowing things to come. There's a place in their schema for the information that they're going to get in the future. But the short answer tests don't. Uh, and so that's amazing. That's amazing. That is immediately actionable for me for the rest of this semester. I can, the remaining pretests that I do, I can write as multiple choice. I'm excited to do it. Uh, and I'm excited to see the benefit uh, of of doing so. Uh, so that's that's really, and I mean that's a that's a big shift. That's a big shift for Lawrence Winter saying this is the space where that tool. This is what that tool is for. Make better mistakes. How was the beer? 
I'll tell you what, we're, we've been doing our cinnamon kick for the entire season. And especially when I, when you told me this was a peach cobbler and I was like, I don't know, I don't, I don't like peach cobbler, like the dessert. I don't, I don't like that. Uh, so I had, I was nervous for many reasons and yet I enjoyed this beer. Uh, my first impressions were this is gross with a sweet finish. And my later impressions, a slightly more nuanced, is that it does have a sweet pastry aromatic. I can, I can, I can get to a place where I can smell the crust, you know, like I can get to that place when I went with this, but the sour is still overpowering for me. I have a history of disliking sours. This does not change my opinion about sours. I feel like this, this started as a beer with promise and then it goes to a terrible place. I don't like it. Thanks for tuning in for yet another month. Thank you once more to our guests. This is always better together. So if you have things that you're reading across the entire education landscape that would be something that could maybe fuel some discussion, some self-reflection, please feel free to share that with us on twopintplc.com. We want to be reading things that are valuable to everybody. We want to improve. So as we pursue growth, discuss research, and struggle well.